Are you ready to take your leadership and your organization to the next level and beyond? Your competitors will be there before you know it. Today's leaders must perpetually innovate, evolve, and grow faster than the competition. Welcome to Innovative Leaders Driving Thriving Organizations with Maureen Metcalf. In the next hour, you'll meet innovative leaders who have become successful at the helm of some of the most respected organizations in the world. And you can become the next big success story. Now, here is your host, Maureen Metcalf. Innovative Leaders Driving Thriving Organizations. I'm your host, Maureen Metcalf. I'm the founder and CEO of Metcalf & Associates. I work with leaders and their organizations to identify the trends that will most likely disrupt their businesses and develop business strategies and business and leadership practices to leverage those trends to create sustainable business and strategic advantage. I'm a regular contributor to Forbes and the lead author on an award-winning book series focusing on innovating how you lead and transforming your organization. I'm also an adjunct faculty member in universities in the U.S. and Germany. Welcome to Cynthia Cherry, who is the president and CEO of the International Leadership Association. We are broadcasting live from Brussels at the annual leadership conference. Thank you, Maureen, for being here with us here in Brussels. I'm so excited about the series of keynote speakers that we are able to present and that will give a timeless message around our topic and theme of leadership in turbulent times. And I'm very pleased with our conference chair, Jord Volkers from Deloitte University, the dean of Deloitte University and his team who helped us along with the ILA staff to present this global conference in Brussels, Belgium in 2017. Thriving Organizations. I'm delighted that today our guest is Subanu Saksana, who is currently the Regional Director at the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, as well as the Managing Partner at the New Ryan Healthcare. At the Gates Foundation, he leads the Foundation's industry engagement in Europe and key global health initiatives. As a renowned Sanskrit scholar, his unique combination of global business leadership at the highest level and a rigorous grounding in ancient traditions of India is described in a chapter of a book leading with present spirit and authenticity. So in this session, we're going to talk about leaders who seek to create mindful organizations and how they do this, even within larger organizations that can be overwhelming, complicated, and bureaucratic. Creating mindfulness in any organization and any leader takes desire and tension and persistence using simple processes to create a healthy work culture that promotes mindfulness and joy during work. We'll also talk about the tools that he uses of mindfulness and reflection to enable leaders to become more effective, more compassionate, and create organizations that are more successful. Subhanu, thank you so much for joining us. Let's talk about what's the most important leadership topic you see at this particular point in history. I think one of the most important topics and agenda items for leaders is how do we create and build leaders who can unite 
diverse groups of people around a common purpose and a purpose that goes beyond the numbers, beyond profit, and gets us back to some of the core principles that great leaders have espoused over generations, that business is a force for good in society. Great leaders unite, they do not divide. Mm -hmm. And so how do we cultivate a new generation of integrative, inclusive leaders that orient what we do to also have a positive impact in the societies they operate? So do you have a, a solution to that? So I'm not sure if I have a solution to that, but uh, one of the principles from the ancient wisdom of the East is to start by really knowing yourself before you can know and help others. And there's a verse in the Urdu language which says, before you meet other people in this world, know the person inside. And what it gets to is the power of introspection and mm -hmm. the ability to be more contemplative. We live in a world where we're judged by outer actions, but if they're not informed by inner awareness, often that's what causes uh, some of the issues we see in society. And therefore, giving people the ability to introspect. Uh, I had a, my old vice chairman would say, you have to be liberated. You have to be very self-aware of what makes you successful and where your blind spots are, uh, which allows you to be a more humble, authentic leader in many ways. And the ability to be vulnerable I think is a very important quality in leadership. So I assume you meditate? Yes. And so what does that look like for you? Having worked with a lot of corporate executives and grad students, there are some people who are concerned that this may be some weird thing that they can't do. Yeah. So what's... So I think a couple of things I would say. One of the most important lessons in life is to be able to show up okay. in your relationships, in the workplace. What does that mean? Is to be fully present. And we've had experience where you're in a meeting with somebody, mm -hmm. and if they're checking their phone, or if they're, they're distracted, they're not really with you in the room. Mm -hmm. And that's a fatal flaw in a leader. But those uh, who've been with fully present leaders feel inspired, challenged, and engaged. Mm -hmm. And mindfulness practices are very much just about giving you the greatest gift you can, which is time with yourself and to be fully conscious of what does it mean to be in the moment, be fully present, fully aware mm -hmm. and uh, imagine the energy that you take from that in every interaction with those around you mm -hmm. if you're able to bring that to everything you do and I think one of the, um, again, the, the greatest teachings from the ancient traditions is if you can turn every act into one where you're fully aware, present in the moment, and you lose yourself in the moment, it unlocks an energy that really connects with others and makes you uh, more impactful in everything you do. So I, I don't think people should see this as something outside of themselves. This is, this is something that you all have had experience with. If you've listened to a quiet piece of music, you've been able to lose yourself. When you go for a walk, you have these moments of just being in the moment, the beauty of nature. Well, take that energy you felt and bring it to everything you do. It's not rocket science. And uh, the point about these mindfulness techniques is not to somehow say, I've got to control the mind. It's about... <laughs> Mind's not controlled. Yeah. And I meditate a lot. Yeah, it's about just being aware of where you are at any moment in time. And wherever the mind goes, be aware it's going somewhere. And then like children playing in the park, you quietly shepherd it back you let it play and you're just aware of that and, and that inculcates over time a discipline and a practice that you can bring the mind 
to where you want it to be. And you know, as, as uh, Matthew Ricard has said, the Buddhist monk who works with the Dalai Lama, is we spend our life training our bodies in the gym. How much time do we spend uh, mind training? Actually, in my classes, I call it weightlifting for the brain. Yeah, mind training. That's what the, we talk about. We don't want our bodies to be flabby, but we don't mind our brains being flabby. Yeah, and uh, I think what, what um, modern neuroscience and psychology tells us is you stay active, you stay young. Mm -hmm. And uh, the brain is the, one of the most powerful organs we have. It's there to be used, and the more you use it, the more it flourishes. So I interviewed someone yesterday, Eliane, mm. who was speaking about from a genetic perspective. If we are thinking hateful, negative mm. stuff on a regular basis, it actually changes our physiology. Mm. So again, to make your point that, it, that we get sick and we are ineffective as leaders based on the lack of mindfulness. Yeah, and I think history has always had two opposing forces. One, at the societal level, we are to some extent tribal okay. and which tends to kind of uh, separate. But at the other level, research has told us that children are innately compassionate in nature and playful. And we've all had the experience of the joy of just selfless giving to someone we love. Mm -hmm. And the joy we get when we make someone else happy who we care about. So I think one of the challenges in leadership is how to overcome some of the societal pressures. You know, we often say organizations divide. People collaborate because there is this innate, uh, if you like, ocean of well-being and that compassion in all of us. We just have to unlock it. It's not as if it's something foreign to our nature. It was there when we were born, but it gets covered over time. I like that idea that it is innately there. I'm not putting something in yeah, the container. Absolutely. In fact, I'm removing some of the debris that has collected based on life. Yeah. Well, so the highest teachings in the Advaita tradition of Vedanta, the non-dualism tradition, mm -hmm. is it says the path to tr the truth is not to point it out, but it's to remove misconceptions around it. So, taking away layers of ignorance. And then the truth has always been there, ever-present. You just haven't noticed it. The example I give, Sometimes you'll be driving to work and looking straight ahead and you may not have noticed the beautiful scenery to the side mm -hmm. that was always there. Mm -hmm. You just never paid attention to it. So a lot of this journey uh, is about helping you pay attention to um, the strength that's already within you and those oceans and those wells of well-being that are there. And you just have to let them out. It's a beautiful illustration that it is, again, this idea that I don't have to find and pour more stuff no. into my head, kind of the Japanese tea ceremony. Yeah. That when the cup is full, the cup is full. It's discovering the, the beautiful painted image on the bottom of the cup. Absolutely. And, you know, encapsulate this as a, a principle from the ancient Sanskrit texts of how to be outwardly supremely active, yet inwardly supremely inactive. And that's about realizing it's about being versus doing. Okay. And getting people comfortable to being themselves. And this comes back to authentic leadership, where I think the goal of great leaders is to create a culture and an environment where you allow people to come to work as themselves and be themselves. Now, to do that, you have to be authentic. You have to come to work as yourself. So how to create that, that self-awareness 
to be authentic, to be vulnerable, humanize yourself as a leader. In general, I love the idea of authenticity, and yet there are a few people I've come across who can be unkind and obnoxious at points in time. Do we want them to be authentically unkind and obnoxious? I have to say, I, I have the view that you always want people to be who they are, because otherwise, how do you know how best to interact with them? And we come with enough masks in life. Uh, Uh, The word persona comes from the Latin through sound when actors would have a mask on Uh and speak through a little hole where the sound would come. And masks divide. And I'd I'd rather know the person than not. And our experience is actually we have a much more powerful way of connecting to people when we are who we are, good, bad or indifferent. So we had a wonderful, many years ago, a team leadership experience that I was quite skeptical about, but was one of the most profound spiritual experiences I ever had, where we did a team session with horses, who were some of the most intuitive animals, you know, 5,000 years of fight or flight response, attunes them to the inner energy of a person. And our tasks were to get the horses to do things with us without a rein, but to somehow connect with the inner energy of the horse by standing with them. And the only way you could do it was to drop your guard, be who you are, whatever it was. Only then would the horse follow you. And I remember a couple of exercises that really stuck with me is I somehow found this amazing connection with a horse and it was following me. And then I just turned to look at the horse and then the horse stopped and I kept walking. And the trainer said, why did you do that? I said, I don't know. And uh, he, he said, do you think you weren't trusting that the horse would follow you? And I said, maybe. He said, well, that, do you think the horse picked it up? So the horse picked up. I wasn't trusting the horse. So the ability to be yourself gives you the opportunity to connect whoever you are. And to be honest, if someone has those traits, you'd rather know them than not. So you know what you're dealing with. And then you can help them. What if they're doing damage until they get help? Yeah, so my experience is people who are of that nature are in pain or in fear. Okay. Driven by some experience or some life event or some framing of them Mm -hmm. and insecurity drives a lot of these actions. So part of it is how do you create that safe space or recognize that that person just doesn't fit into the environment that they're in and they're better off in another environment. Often the tough job of leadership is to say to someone it's not working, but to understand why it's not working, it could just be it's not a great fit for that person. Mm-hmm. And a sinner in one scenario could be a saint in another. Ah, okay. And I think that's an important thing not to lose. By and large, unless you're inherently wired to be a psychopath, people like to do good work. And if you look at most inter-office politics and situations, those people don't come to work saying, you know, I want to watch the world burn, to use the phrase from Dark Knight. They want to do a good job. They're just not so ever being able to find their ability to do it in the environment that's creative. So I often ask myself, if someone is not performing, first, it's probably my fault. Have I set the person up for success? Have I played to their strengths? Okay. Uh, have I understood their real motivations or not? Have I created an environment where warring factions can work together on some transcendent goal? So a sense of purpose. Purpose, exactly. Okay. And you know, the great way to get people to collaborate is give them another enemy. 
is an example, or another goal that transcends their petty individual goals. Uh, so I think a lot of onus goes on us as leaders to create that climate before writing someone off as disruptive. And I've had experience of a couple of people that came across that, but realized that A, we were not playing to what they were good at. Okay. Or B, we were not setting them up for success because I created mutually opposing objectives with others. Ah, so so I inherently set up conflict. So we look at the children who, yeah. who misbehave and we often say the classroom is structured improperly or something. Yeah. But with adults, we assume that they're supposed to... Figure it out somehow. Yeah. And why should that be? Versus, you know, we should ask ourselves, did we set it up for the right climate in the first place? So let's go back to mindfulness then. Mm. So you as a leader, you've mentioned you've had some of these situations. How did mindfulness help you navigate that situation? I think one of the most powerful lessons I learned actually was from a German boss. Okay. It was a joke, oh, not a joke, a term of endearment, he'd call me Swami. He'd say, Swami, before taking a decision, speak to five people. Okay. And what he meant by that is don't just knee-jerk react to the last thing you heard. Mm-hmm. Spend the time to actually reflect, get input from multiple sources, and then make a decision. And I have to say, those contemplative practices train you to not jump to the nearest decision or the last on the last thing you heard. Mm-hmm. It's a Malaysian society, people read the last email as the gospel truth and, and then just react to it mm-hmm. versus have I got the full facts, have I got the full picture? And there's a very interesting turn in a leader's journey mm-hmm. where you get to a certain point in your career by being shown or showing that you're decisive, judgmental, can react and get stuff done. Yeah. What do I look for when I create a board of directors? I want people who are curious, who ask purposeful probing questions, mm-hmm. who have a desire to understand, mm-hmm. who have a desire to listen more than speak. Those are very different skills and many people don't realize those. But those can come from the leaders who are very self-aware, liberated, who are contemplative in nature mm-hmm. and I think at a certain point in many leaders' journeys they open themselves up to that. I wish we got to more leaders younger to show them this is actually going to be important in your life journey and will make you more effective as a leader. Much of my work has to do with developmental maturity yeah. and as people go through a series of steps in maturity and it, it's based on the uh, Harvard work of Bob Keegan and um, Tor Burton and Suzanne Kukurator and so they say there are, there are a series of steps that they have created as the framework and as people go through those they become more cognitively complex, mm-hmm. more emotionally intelligent. Their behaviors align more with their values. Their time horizon becomes longer. And one of the activities that we look at to move through those levels consistently is a reflection practice. Absolutely. So, so whether it's meditation or journaling yeah. or something that is, I'm exam- I'm quieting the mind and I'm also opening myself up to reflect on what I did that I'm most proud of mm. and what I did that I am, in my case, horrified by. Mm. Like, what, what am I doing? And how do I self-correct before getting sure. corrected? And I think for those out there who may be a little scared of that, mm-hmm. uh, being that open with themselves and that vulnerability, I think there's an important tool that's available that helps a lot of folks and that I, I believe strongly in is the access to a mentor or a coach mm-hmm. in that journey. 
to provide you with that contemplative space. And one of the bits of research that highly impacted me when I read about it is work that was done on underprivileged children in underprivileged societies. And the question was initially phrased as, why do such children not succeed? No progress was made. And then someone had the idea to turn the question around to say, well, in these difficult underprivileged societies, granted many don't succeed, but there are some who do. Let's study why they succeed. And then some important findings came. First, the, how some of these kids were naturally optimistic and resilient, mm -hmm. but they had access to a role model. Okay. They had access to a mentor. Some, and the way I define a mentor is someone who believes in you more than you believe in yourself. And such mentors can be very tough with you. My grandfather, I call him as a mentor, a couple of times he made me cry. Mm -hmm. But he would say, Subhanu, you have an ability to change the world. And he instilled a belief in me that I didn't see in myself. But having access to a coach or a mentor gives you that contemplative space, slightly external to the practices we're talking about, but can inculcate that joy of introspection so that then the person can do it on their own. And often being able to be the mirror for somebody is something that as we develop leaders, we must develop them to be better coaches. I think so that's a great point, so that they, because it seems that part of leading is totally. inspiring those who follow me. And unleashing the, the gifts in others, that's what leadership mm -hmm. should be about. And so, you know, I'm lucky I teach in my, outside of work, uh, I teach Sanskrit, and I, I've seen just the power of when you, someone, the light bulb goes off. Mm -hmm. and, and so I try and bring that into the corporate sphere also, and, and uh, recognize that you know, every day is your chance to train yourself to be a better leader, a better coach. And so these are skills I think if we can give to leaders, allow them to help bring others along the journey also. So I'd like to turn for a moment to that reflection practice. Yes. So I get the meditation, I train my mind, mm. um, but then there's this other part of I have to reflect on and correct or adjust what I'm doing. Can you share a little bit about your practice in doing that? In terms of correcting a strategy or just a behavior? The, the practice you use that allows you to reflect and adjust. Yeah, so I think there are a couple of things. One is when you give yourself time with yourself. Mm -hmm. Uh, and you say, this is the most risk-free zone I have mm -hmm. with myself. To really force yourself to say, well, what am I doing well? and Where am I mm -hmm. falling short of the mark? And, and therefore to say, okay, where do I need help to change what I'm doing? And often as leaders, we're not comfortable asking no. for that help. We're not. And we, you know, and that's why this notion I talked about earlier of vulnerability, I think, is a hallmark of a great leader. I have to say one thing that helped me maybe, and I reflected on it when I think about the planning the career steps for others, is I had some very tough assignments early in my life, mm -hmm. and different ones. I never followed a linear career path. And I think having that exposure early and seeing that I could bounce back mm -hmm. taught me that actually, you know, throw yourself out for different experiences, and it's okay to be the stupid guy in the room, and uh, actually not be afraid to ask the dumb question, because that's how you learn. Uh, and I think people that have had a very, shall we say, protected 
career trajectory or very protected upbringing may be a little bit uh, more reticent of opening themselves up to that. Uh-huh. Whereas those who've gone through immense adversity, so I, had a, I have a very dear friend who had a near-death uh, car crash in his 20s. And he said it liberated him in his life and his career. He said, uh-huh. life's short, I'm going to do what matters. And uh, in, in, in work, he, he, he would say, if something didn't feel right, he'd just say no. Because he'd been to the edge and he came back. Uh-huh. Uh, and that, uh, I'm not recommending everyone goes through those traumatic experiences, <laughs> but there's a lot of research that talks about how people who've had these difficult experiences somehow have a more expansive, compassionate view of the world and of themselves and the ability to be more self-reflective and self-critical. And I think how do we engineer that in the business world is give people tough assignments early in life and show that you've got their back. Mm-hmm. Send them around the world, see the world. Uh, I think the fact that early in our career we went to live in Moscow in Russia, what a wonderful experience. And, and uh, it taught me that you have to ask a question when you do anything, what's the worst case? Mm-hmm. And if the worst case isn't going to kill you or harm you, it'll be a great learning experience. Mm-hmm. And so when you have that mindset, then it's all about gathering rich experiences. You know, I'm hearing the word recently a lot, grit. It gives us the grit or the um, tenacity to deal with the things that are hard. Yeah, and, and I think uh, there's an important point here to be made, which is these practices, it's not about shying away from being sad or happy, but actually right. it's about actually recognizing and being fully experiencing awareness to sadness. Life, if you're going to live life, life's going to happen, good and bad. But it's about letting it happen on that ocean of well-being that's within all of us. So these emotions, you know, flit across the sky like a, a bird, tra- like a like a trail of an aeroplane or something. They come and they go. So it's not about shutting yourself off from those emotions, but being actually fully present and aware of them. And that somehow taps a much deeper experience of life and well-being that is much richer for it. So it's not about just trying to be happy all the time or sad. It's about just being and letting these things come as waves through you and through those to just open up an even deeper, richer um, way of living. Thank you. What a great way to end this segment is the idea that there is nothing to be avoided, Mm. but instead to embrace life in all its forms. I hope that I am able to do more of that on this trip as I continue to wander about Brussels leaving belongings, (laughs) places I didn't intend to. Super. Great stuff. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Subhanir. My prayer. Perfect. I appreciate your sharing your wisdom with our listeners and with me and your presence. It was my absolute pleasure. Thank you very much. Thank you. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Metcalf & Associates is your trusted partner to create perpetual innovation and evolution in your leadership and business. Are you ready to innovate and evolve? Since its inception, Metcalf & Associates has been dedicated to helping leaders evolve their leadership mindset and skills and create organizations that can continually innovate to achieve results in a highly competitive and rapidly changing environment. 
We help leaders, management teams, and organizations identify and create the perpetual capacity to identify and implement transformative solutions necessary to meet their mission and create strategic advantage. Metcalf & Associates offers proven results backed by leading-edge research and a global network of accomplished consultants and thought leaders. Visit Metcalf-Associates.com. Maureen and her associates are ready to discuss your needs and tailor a solution to meet your goals. Move forward with Metcalf & Associates. Visit Metcalf-Associates.com today. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You are listening to Innovative Leaders Driving Thriving Organizations. To reach Maureen Metcalf or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. Or send an email to info at metcalf-associates.com. Now, back to this week's program. So hi, welcome Michelle Harrison to Innovative Leaders Driving Thriving Organization in the International Leadership Association Conference. Thank you for having me. So I'm going to give a little bit of background about Michelle. She is the global CEO of Cantor Public, the WPP Group Public Policy Consulting and Research Business. They work with clients in government, corporations, international government organizations, and global NGOs to provide the evidence for decision-making, support innovation in policy and service delivery, improve public value, build local capacity, and share global best practices. Cantor public offices are in Brussels, Paris, London, Berlin, Munich, Amsterdam, Nairobi, Lagos, Accra, Delhi, Seoul, Sydney, and Washington. Thank you. (laughs) So so Michelle and I just changed the direction of what we're going to talk about during our intro. And with your permission, we are at the International Leadership Association Conference. And we were talking about what this discussion would entail. Michelle, why don't you share a little bit of the conversation that we were having about a decision you've made. And so this really gets to the underlying women in business and I would say people in business because I think men are making these decisions also more now than they used to. Right, thank you. I guess because uh, you're a woman and we quickly established that we (laughs) understood each other's lives, what I said to you, what I revealed was the reason why I can't attend dinner tonight is I had, uh, it's Friday night, and I had thought that I would be on a very early train out of Brussels tomorrow morning in order to be back with my two younger children by mid-morning tomorrow. My eldest son is, is now at university. And actually, when I checked the train timetable, the train that takes me back to where I need to get off doesn't leave until the afternoon tomorrow, which means uh, I don't get home till mid-afternoon and I guess what I've just been saying to you is I have an an algorithm in my mind that I go through with regard to well I suppose how much time I can uh, 
I can cope with being away from my family at the weekend. And somewhere between 11 o'clock in the morning and 3 o'clock in the afternoon on a Saturday is the point at which I feel I'm no longer going to have my uh, weekend at home with my children and how important that is to me. And so I had uh, just explained that I'm being extremely honest and uh, the reason that I can't attend a dinner tonight is because I do want to be home with my kids before lunchtime tomorrow. And in that, so first, thank you for sharing yeah. that. And in the algorithm, we just read all of the countries in which yeah. you work. So I'm assuming you're away from your family a great deal of time. It varies. So part of what went into my mind when I was making that decision is I'm just about to go into a period of travel. So next week I'm overseas for three days. The week after that I'm overseas for three days. And then I do one of my very unusual long hauls when I'm actually away for nine days and I'm very rarely away at the weekend so I have a period of, of travel coming up which does mean that I won't be spending uh, enough time with my kids which makes this weekend particularly important. If I was going to be working from home for the next two or three weeks or working out of London where I live for the next two or three weeks I, I would have made a different decision. So we also talked about not just the time work for your kids, but as a global CEO, you don't always get to be home when you want to. So the balancing with family and the people for whom you have responsibility for their livelihoods. Well, if you take on a, a leadership position in a business, then ultimately you're taking on responsibility for ensuring that business is thriving. And if that business isn't thriving, then they would Ultimately, that leads to material damage to shareholders and employees. So I think um, we can be very glib about things like expressions like work-life balance, but what you actually have is a series of different responsibilities. And if you choose to take a leadership role, you must do that in full knowledge of your obligation to the business and all of the stakeholders in that business and to understand yourself, your own, the, the room you have for manoeuvre in also being able to fulfil your responsibilities and your needs to be with your, your family too. So I don't think that that's something that only women or mothers experience. I think that's a challenge for people in leadership roles who are parents or people who are in leadership roles who have any form of community or family obligation. I think, I think all of us would have those same difficult conversations in our own minds. In fact, I'm flying home and then two days later turning around and getting on another plane to see my parents. Um, my dad is aging and my stepmom is going to be traveling. And yeah. one of my commitments, and it's not an obligation, it's a desire to be there to help rather than have someone who's not family helping my dad at a point in his life where we won't always have him. Yeah. So those commitments feel really important and an honor to fulfill, not an obligation. Yes, absolutely. Uh, and I think, though, where it's important that we, we're honest is these things are highly contextual. So they depend on an enormous number of variables in terms of the circumstances of your home life at a particular moment in time, the arrangements you have in place, can afford to have in place or have in place because you have familial support, 
uh, versus also uh, where your business is at or your business responsibilities are at that particular moment in that organization's uh, you know, transition or growth and also where your leadership team are in terms of their own experience and sophistication. So I think these things are highly contextual. And so when we, uh, when we talk about the trade-offs that people make, I think we have to view them as, as changing often according to the circumstances of the business or the organisation they lead and the, uh, the situation they're in at home. So, for instance, uh, you're talking about a, a, a parent who, who needs you now. Ten years ago, that may not have been an issue. Wasn't yeah, so the highly contextual. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and having gone through having a mom with Alzheimer's, this is just that point in life where I didn't want to outsource my parents. Yeah. Now, mom is in assisted living, so because I, I do travel, but I took a big role in that transition, and it was a very deliberate decision that, that took me away. Unfortunately, I also have a team that can do what needs to be done, and I, I do a lot of coaching, and I have a client right now with uh, a mom that he take, cares for in his home, also with Alzheimer's, and it's just, it's a daily challenge, and it, something he chose to do, again, not not required, but to your point, the, the support system and the context allows us to make different decisions. Yes, so I guess from a leadership point of view, we want to be able to provide an environment where people have the best chance of being able to, to make the trade-offs that are right for them mm -hmm. at that time. Yes, I think uh, one of the other things we discussed before we started recording is that for many years in my career as a mother of three I haven't always been entirely open about the decisions I was making and that has come out not quite as I intended. I may not have said the reason I won't be there is because I'm going to be at home or I may not have talked very openly about the trade-offs I felt I was making. I would have made the same trade-offs but kept them to myself. So over the last few days, actually, listening to, there's been a lot of controversy on the radio as to why women haven't spoken out about that particular situation at the moment in Hollywood, and I understand that. I understand why people who do not feel that they are in positions of power feel that they don't have the positional power mm -hmm. to say what's going on. So in a very, very small way, uh, one thing that I can do is to talk openly about the challenges of parenting and leading from a business point of view and I hope that makes it easy for other people to do the same. Thank you for your candor on that because I have at times not spoken out more on the sexual harassment side, just tolerated, deflected and tried to get my work done because I didn't know if being honest would adversely impact in a consulting role impact my job with the client or my job with the firm? My guess is that if we had a hundred women in here right now and they were, you know, over the age of 16, I, I, my guess is they would all say that if they were in an environment where they felt they could be honest. And I would love to see that change. And so would I. Uh, and my view is though, honestly, it's about inclusive leadership structures. So 
if I think about the experiences I may have had and why I would not have felt I could talk about them, that would have been to do with positional power. Once you have a situation in organisations of any sort where the positional power is not held just by one particular group, then so many of the things that we're discussing no longer exist. So it's the inequality of who has traditionally held that positional power that makes it harder for another group that's trying to gain access to it to speak openly. Uh, once you have uh, fully inclusive boards that are you know, equally proportionate men, women, and equally proportionate in terms of other types of inclusivity too, you remove those challenges to a very large degree. There will always be the abuse of positional power between older right. and younger, right. senior and junior, but the issue of it being men versus women is easily removed by changing the power structures. Well, especially when we have options for people to report that, that don't reinforce the, it's not safe for you to, to be honest and to take care of yourself. Yeah, uh, and I'm not, I'm not at all cynical about that. I think options for reporting have existed for a long, long time. We still go back to the issue of why they're not used. And it's because people fear the consequences of speaking up. And so I think to truly remove the consequences of speaking up, you have to create organisations where men or women or anyone who behaves in that way is not in any way viewed as normal. So, and, and, and I think that that becomes, um, well, I think we're getting there. I think, I I think we're getting there, I do, honestly. Yeah. And I don't mean to say that only women can report to women, or it's not an anti-male thing. No. It's more of a cultural thing, because I had female bosses, and I, in some cases I wouldn't have felt any safer reporting to them. In some cases I would. So I do want to be clear that it's not specifically a gender issue but more a culture of deferring to authority. Yes, completely. And I have enormous sympathy for how difficult, challenging it must be for men who are having to... Uh, the vast majority of men who will feel self-conscious about things they'd never ever dream of participating in. The vast majority of men. Uh -huh. so, so from that point of view, I also think we have to be very careful the other way. Yeah, that, that we're not reverse exactly. engineering. Exactly. Yes, we're talking about inclusivity, not exclusivity. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's a great point because, yeah. again, I don't, in, in no way do I think we improve anyone's situation by just shifting the out group to a different group. No. And I have, a, I have two sons and a daughter, and when I think about what I want for them, so my daughter is now six or seven years away from entering the workforce. And sometimes I feel quite depressed that um, she may enter a workforce where there is still a very real pay gap, gender-based pay gap. I mean, that just, that just appalls me. Why would my daughter earn less than my son's for anything she may do? You know, I don't love her less than I love my son. She isn't less able than my son's. The flip side of that is I also am very aware of what it must be like to be a young man going into the workplace and, and, and all of these extra things or burdens they can potentially carry because 
um, of not making them vulnerable to being accused of things as well. So, so I think uh, we must always move with caution, but the, the greatest way around this is inclusivity and leadership. Diversity and inclusion in leadership is so vital to make it easier on us all. I want to go back to something you said that, that strikes me. I know people talk about, I can't say anything because of the political correctness police. And we don't want to go there to no. your point. And so inclusivity and a culture of transparency and fairness. Yes, fairness and also not being too harsh on people unnecessarily. Mm-hmm. Uh, I. It, these things are such a matter of balance and caution. I'm aware that when you are in a role where you talk a lot, and you talk a lot and you're very tired and you wish to keep energy in a room and things come, you say things before you've necessarily connected with your brain. I'm aware that if someone did a sort of an analysis of my discourse over the course of a day, I am sure I say all kinds of things that if I read them written down, I think, oh my goodness, I can't, I can't believe I said that. That's not an expression of what I believe. And I think that when we are looking at people who are in positions of authority or men and, and coming from a point of view where they're more likely to experience complaints, I do think we also need to be really cautious about when we call things out. I think being overly judgmental about language, things like that, that just that do this with humanity and good sense, anyone is capable of saying the wrong thing. That doesn't mean they're trying to damage someone's career. And I think we need to be really cautious that issues to do with sexual harassment don't take us into a position where men feel they can't talk for being accused of things that they don't really think or feel. And, and that's, that's possible, and you do have to be cautious to keep, to keep that balance right. So I think for everyone to move forward with good grace and the presumption that people do wish to do the best things. Yeah. You know, I do have clients who've said, I couldn't ever say, nice outfit, or you look attractive today, because they're terrified of saying anything that will seem inappropriate. And it does seem unfortunate that I could say to you, I love that green blouse, it looks great on you. And if a man said that, there were some of my colleagues who just never would. Because if you call out a blouse, it's not an outfit, and the rules, the political correct rules, say you can't do that. So I think in some places we have, to your point, not demonstrated grace and, and so it's a pendulum swinging, isn't it? And I don't blame people for being concerned about how those things may be heard. It's not what, always what they intended to say, it's how things are heard. And, you know, I talk to my sons about this, you know, because I want them to be careful and cautious. Um, I, I think that you get a pendulum swinging. So, at the, you know, sometimes you have to swing too far the other way in order to get us back to a good middle place. Again, it goes back to this issue of when we have diverse and inclusive leadership in organisations, some of these things will no longer need to be discussed. And the flip side of that, when we have people who are different than us, Mm. we're going to make mistakes. Mm. So to your point, it's the reason I don't record live. I need to be able to edit because I say things that 
don't come out of the, my mouth the way I intended. Oh, absolutely. Oh, I, I mean, I think I do this several times a day. I mean, anyone who, and, and already, as we've done this interview, and I hope this is a bit that you don't edit out, but I wouldn't mind you editing out other bits. Already, as we've done this interview, I have felt that I've expressed myself inappropriately on a couple of occasions, and I said things where I was speaking before I really knew quite how I'd, I'd finished my sentence, and I already understand I've done that. So um, it is a constant. And also, uh, what will happen for someone in the kind of role you or I? I mean, we are often finding ourselves having conversations with people we don't know, or people, I'm very fortunate because I work in such a global environment, so I have the enormous pleasure of meeting people all the time from different parts of the world, and it is one of the greatest pleasures of my job. But equally, it's also when I can be very challenged through my own pure lack of knowledge and ignorance. I sat next to a wonderful young woman at dinner a few nights ago who was from... Vietnam and I had just been watching a documentary uh, series um, at home in London about the Vietnam War and I raised this in conversation and as I did it I realised I simply did not have enough knowledge culturally Mm -hmm. to know whether or not this was something um, that she would want to talk about. As a European I understand those sensitivities across Europe and even to some extent in the US but I I was immediately um, because I I don't know Vietnam well I immediately realized that so I I think um, yeah I think we should judge people it's like when we do research we look for evidence from many different areas when we're putting together um, data sets for governments to base their public policy decisions on we triangulate we look at a problem from many different angles and I think I guess my final point would be on this issue of, uh, of, of leadership and how we evaluate people we must evaluate them from many different areas and allow people the chance to illustrate their true integrity and ethics over more than one conversation I was going to say it sounds like going to intent yeah. and mistakes. I, as much as I can engage in some of the political banter, I'm so grateful that I am not in that role of people scrutinizing everything I say. Mm-hmm. Because out of context, mm-hmm. some very high percentage of what I say mm-hmm. could be made to sound mean-spirited or ridiculous or uninformed. And I hope we're not, as leaders, we're all at risk of that. Yeah. And it seems like the biggest antidote is to create an environment of, the word I love is grace. Yes. I think gracious. that's a nice word. We do need to be gracious. Yeah. With one another and with ourselves. Because as you said, I hear myself and I wish I could reel back in what I've said. I do as well. And, and as soon as I get on that cycle, I... I inhibit my ability to be present. Yes, and actually, um, yeah, I think I think in in all areas of leadership, I I make mistakes all the time, probably daily. You know, I work on the basis of if four out of five of the decisions I make are the right decisions, we're moving forward. And what I hope is the ones, the decisions I've made that are wrong, are not fatal to us. <laughs> yeah, I, I would say yeah. they're directionally uh, Yes, and, and my job is to constantly reevaluate, and actually decisions are just, uh, poor decisions are generally decisions that we are yet to 
to just improve mm-hmm. upon. Mm-hmm. But we have to uh, go forward at a pace and we have to understand that leadership, you know, all of us, all of us make poor decisions regularly. We say, we say things that have been poorly constructed regularly. I will sometimes go home at night regretting what I may have said to a colleague, not because of my intention, but how the phrasing of it may have given the wrong impression. And I'm, I'm sad that my words may have made someone else feel sad. So I think I'm, I learned to forgive myself a bit more for those mistakes. I learned to understand, to uh, judge people on the basis of a series of behaviours, not single incidents. Mm-hmm. Which is so critical in an environment where many people are afraid to do anything for risk of being fired. Yeah, I, and I can't bear that. I can't bear that. So uh, if you've put someone, uh, well, especially with a senior team, if you've put someone into a position because you can, you can see what their talent is, then honestly the single best thing to do is to let them be the best they can be and get out of their way. And, and if they make an odd decision which is not the one you would have made, well, so what? Right? It, it, um, as long as it doesn't Yeah, of course, of course. And then that, that needs to go all the way through the organisation, all the way down. So, you know, our junior people coming in can quickly be able to feel that they have the opportunity to be the trusted advisor in some conversations. You know, and uh, yes. yes. Thank you so much. Thank you for joining us live in Brussels at the International Leadership Association Conference. In these turbulent times, investing time and energy to refresh and evolve your leadership skills becomes a critical success driver. I challenge each of us to consider the impact effective leadership makes on our lives and on the lives of the organizations we lead and the people that those organizations impact. Imagine what each of us can do as we work together to solve these big problems that impact us, together we can create a world that is more peaceful, more just, and creates more opportunities for everyone to thrive. Thank you again for joining us this week. Please tune in for another edition of Innovative Leaders Driving Thriving Organizations with Maureen Metcalf next Tuesday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. We hope you'll join us then. Drive and thrive and have a great week.